Poddo. When I first visited Cheltenham, almost a decade ago, there was one thing I wanted to see. It wasn't the pit hill pump room or the racetrack or the view from the top of Cleve Hill. It wasn't anything to do with the Regency splendour people associate with the town. What I wanted to see, most of all, was a large rotating wooden fish that every hour spews bubbles from its mouth while the musical classic I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles plays. This is the Wishing Fish Clock. Installed in the Regent Arcade Shopping Centre in 1985, it's a contraption of exquisite weirdness. Take your eye off the enormous fish for long enough and you might notice the mice emerging from hatches in the clock base, or the felt snake trying to catch them. It's a work of art that could only bloom in the mind of one man, Kit Williams. This is not really the story of the clock. The clock is in some ways a carbon copy of the neural pathways that had, a few years earlier, forged a different piece of history. This is the story of the man behind the clock and the golden hair he buried beneath the earth. This is the town that knew too much. I'm Nick Hilton. As with most good stories that weren't originally a podcast, this one starts with a book publisher and an author. Well, it started really in March 1976. The boss man at the publisher, Jonathan Cape, then, was a guy called Tom Mashler. That's the voice of Paul Slade, a journalist and writer of dark history books on subjects as black as iodine crystals. He's also one of the foremost historians of the Masquerade Saga. Now, he stopped by at a, a London gallery called the Portal Gallery, where he saw one of William's paintings on display. Williams at that time was about 30. He had won at least one award and he was starting to pick up the odd sale for his paintings, but he was very much at the beginning of his career as an artist. So Mashler goes to the gallery, he sees William's painting, he likes it a lot, and he went to the gallery's owner and he said he really wanted to meet Kit Williams and could the gallery's owner wangle an invitation for him. So the gallery's owner phoned William and said, look, I've got a publisher here who'd like to speak to you. Can we come out to lunch? Williams lived somewhere in the middle of nowhere, right in the middle of the, the British countryside. So this lunch invitation is arranged. And Mashler said to Williams, look, I think you could do a really fantastic children's book. We'll publish it. It'll be a big seller. It'll make your name. What do you say? And Williams just wasn't interested at all. He said, I don't want to do a children's book because I'm going to have to paint the same characters in the same world again and again and again, and I'll be bored stiff doing that. I'm just not interested. But Mashler, being a cunning old sod, he <laughs> just as he left, he slipped in one last little bit of flattery for Williams, which I think must be what did the trick. He said to him, well, I understand you don't want to do the book. Don't worry, I, I won't go on at you about it, but... It's such a shame because it would have been really extraordinary. You could have done a children's book like no other. And then he said, but you don't want to do it, so that's fine. So he wanders off. And, of course, this idea gets under William's skin because it's, it's a very flattering thing to be told. And eventually he decides, maybe I do want to do this book. But if I'm going to spend that amount of time doing all these paintings, I want to be damn sure people are going to look at them and really study them. So what I'll do is I'll make it a puzzle book. 
I'll build clues into all the paintings. If people want to solve the puzzle and win the prize at the end of it, they're going to really have to study the paintings in order to pick up on all the clues. And not only that, but if I'm going to do a treasure hunt, I'm going to do it right. It's going to be real physical treasure and I'm going to go out and I'm going to bury it in the cold, wet earth. If people want to win this, they're going to have to go out, they're going to actually have to dig <laughs> and they're going to have to lever this prize up. Because as a kid, he'd seen um, all sorts of things on the back of cereal packets and so on that presented themselves as treasure hunts. But all that happened if you won was you got a £5 book token through the post or something. And Williams decided if I'm going to do a treasure hunt, I'm going to have these truly magical elements to it. And that was the crucial thing that set Masquerade apart, I think. He was determined to actually make it real treasure that you really had to go out and dig up for yourself. My father worked for a publishing company that mostly did textbooks. And when I was a kid, every Christmas morning, there would be a pile of new and interesting books under the tree. And one year, I guess when I was about eight years old, one of those books was Masquerade. That's the voice of Dan Amrich, a veteran video games writer who also curates the site's bunny ears, dedicated to the story of Masquerade. And I don't know if my dad ever really knew what masquerade was or if he had just heard from somebody at the office bookstore oh yeah this is a hot seller and this is a big thing or maybe he just thought i would have liked a picture book because i was about eight years old you know that was just sort of it something in my imagination just fired and i loved the idea that there was a book that was hiding something in plain sight so i just became as obsessed as anybody else would have been, except that, you know, I was eight and I didn't really know anything that would help me very much. And I missed a lot of the clues, but I was fascinated primarily by the idea that this was a puzzle that was masquerading as something else. Like this wasn't just a book. Somebody had done something amazing. The story that he came up with was that the book would revolve around the moon sending a love token to the sun. And the moon would use Jack Hare, his central character, as its messenger to take this love token to the sun. But the conceit of the book would be that somewhere along the way on this journey, the hare would have lost the love token and it would be up to the reader to find it. So that was how the puzzle entered into the book. And having decided on a, a hare at the centre of the story, when Williams came to make his prize, which is this lovely gold medallion about five inches long in the shape of a hare, it's got gorgeous filigree gold work in the body. It's got little amulets and coins hanging from it. Very delicate, lovely piece of work. So he shaped the medallion as a hair because he had the hair right at the centre of the book's story. Williams, having got his medallion, the publisher insisted that he have some sort of witness to the, um, to the burying of the medallion. So they recruited Bamba Gascoigne, who was then the presenter of University Challenge. And he takes Bamba Gascoigne out in his old post office van. They drive out by dead of night and they bury the medallion with Gascoigne watching at the, the site that Williams has chosen. As a finishing touch, they dumped a cow pat on top of it to disguise the bit of disturbed ground where they just buried the thing. The key elements to Masquerade's puzzle is actually in the artwork. Most of the stuff in the text of the book is just confirmers or side puzzles to keep kids interested so they could get small wins along the way. But to really solve the master riddle, it all comes down to a rather complicated visual puzzle 
of the 15, 16 images in the master puzzle, every one of them has characters that are painted in very specific positions. And it's not immediately clear, but the body language is a big key to how this puzzle is solved. So on the very first title page, Kit did a little riddle that said uh, something along the lines of, in order to solve this riddle, you must use your eyes. And if you are clever, they will point you to the prize. And that was a literal direction that you should be looking at the eyes of every character who is a primary character in the paintings and trace a line, physically draw a line in the book from their eyes to their longest finger. If you did that, that would lead you to letters that had been painted on the border, which looked like they were just, you know, interesting text or whatever. But those letters spelled out a different word or phrase on each of the painting's borders. And when you put all of those words together, it spelled out a sort of broken sentence that was, in fact, directions on exactly where to look with some poetic license, but that was an overt direction of where it was buried and when you would be able to find it in exactly the right spot. Describing the art of Kit Williams with mere words would be extraordinarily inefficient. It is dense. Dense with motifs, dense with figures, dense with colour. Some people would find it kitsch, others will find it leering. He's not averse to an inexplicably nude female figure. But living beneath all that is a textured richness that ties together folklore and imagination. In short, asking him to illustrate a children's book was a stroke of deranged genius. But Masquerade is not really a children's book. You could give it to a child, sure, and likely there would be enough about the sight of flowers and hairs to amuse them. Though probably not these days, thank you very much, Pepper, bloody pig. But the puzzle, the raison d'etre of the book would wash over them in much the same way that a discussion of tax brackets or structural racism would wash over my dog. Williams once said that Masquerade could be worked out by an Oxford Don or a smart 12-year-old. That was bollocks. For a while, it looked like Masquerade might never be solved. After the initial fervour died down, only die-hard puzzle hunters were left searching for the hair. Perhaps that was part of Williams' genius keeping the stakes low enough to appeal only to the purest of hunters. Some decades later, the notorious American fighter pilot turned art dealer Forrest Fenn would bury a treasure chest worth almost $2 million, somewhere under the earth, deep in the Rocky Mountains. The hunt for the Fenn treasure, based off clues in a self-published memoir called The Thrill of the Chase, resulted in the deaths of at least five men and trespassing and burglary arrests against many others. Eventually, in 2020, just a few months before Fenn would die at the age of 90, the treasure was unearthed by a medical student named Jack Stuff, and the butchery stopped. Fenn's mistake, I suspect, was to bury his treasure amidst the gorgeous crevasses and twisting rivers of Yellowstone National Park. Williams took no such chances, but we'll come to that. Solving the puzzle that Williams had constructed was reliant on being able to witness a shadow cast at autumn or Easter's equinox, which hamstrung two young teachers, Mike Barker and John Rousseau, who are often held up as the true solvers of the puzzle, but who were battling to squeeze their masquerade obsession in between holding down jobs and raising young families. That shadow was cast by the long finger of Catherine's Cross in Ampthill Great Park, just north of London. The park is situated on the site where Ampthill Castle once stood, a palace built by Sir John Cornwall, 
brother-in-law to Henry IV, which later fell into the hands of the crown during the reign of Henry VIII. Henry, the famously beheading happy brute, housed his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, there during their divorce proceedings. Hence why, in the 1770s, a cross was erected in her memory. No trace of the castle remains, just a lonely cross in a park frequented primarily by suburban families and dog walkers. Were you living in Amptill when the book was released? Yes, I was. So um, I still have it, my first edition. (laughs) That's the voice of Mariella Cook, an Amptill resident and one of the organisers of the Masquerade 40 celebrations. And I bought it in, there was an artisan shop in Amptill that did wooden toys, unusual kitchen implements and books. And it was on sale there. It was a shop called Gallery 10. So it's 10 Church Street. At this time, presumably no one knew the connection between the book and the and Amtil. No, no. We just knew he li- he had lived locally. When the book was released, of course, there was quite a lot of interest from people just trying to solve it. Yeah. So people went miles. And I think you know some of the story that people sold houses to come across from Canada to look for it. I have a really good friend and he tells the story of how he and his wife and children and mother, mother-in-law and the dog went to Scotland to camp because he was so convinced it was in Scotland and there it was on his doorstep. (laughs) Yes, yes. well, it's the embarrassment is it was found within walking distance where I lived. I was absolutely hopeless at solving the puzzle, though I bought it for my, my daughter's, I think, ninth birthday. That's the voice of Kelvin Horton, another of the Masquerade 40 organisers. I gave it to various crossword puzzle experts to try and see if they could solve it and couldn't. Anyway, the the funny part is that I decided that we'd go up to Scotland where I thought it was buried. And we took my wife, son and daughter, mother-in-law and the dog. We went up to somewhere near Oban and found a bog on top of a hill and dug around there. So why did you why did you think it was there? Did you have Well, there are lots of red herrings in the book. And I followed a red herring. I should have realised, really, that they're the symbols for chemical elements. I rearranged that into a, a national grid reference. How big a hole did you dig? Oh, well, it, it was boggy, Pete. It wasn't difficult. <laughs> but I did, did realise that it was not quite what I was looking for. In 1982, three years after the initiation of the hunt... Williams received a letter, the first letter, offering a correct, albeit vague, suggestion of the hare's whereabouts. But before we move on to the next chapter of this story, raise a glass to Queen Kate, who's been rather hard done by in the annals of history, and enjoy this rendition of Greensleeves, a song apocryphally composed by Henry VIII for notorious home wrecker Anne Boleyn, performed for you by the Wishing Fish Clock Ensemble. There was, naturally, a huge amount of interest in the discovery of the golden hair, and in its discoverer, Ken Thomas. But when Thomas appeared on television, he did so with the reluctance of a man on trial for war crimes at The Hague. He wore a wide-brimmed hat and appeared only in profile behind slatted glass that entirely obscured his potentially bonny features. You were lucky, really, weren't you? Very lucky. My dog was the one. Without my dog, I don't think I'd have bothered. If I hadn't stopped to... Uh 
can never look, can never run, can never wait. No, I'd never found it. I'd have still been digging at Kim Bolton, along with the others. You didn't need to be Miss Marple or Colleen Rooney to realise that this was a man with something to hide. And here, the story, fittingly, gets even weirder. In 1984, a video game appeared on the market called Hairraiser. It was published for the Acorn Electron, Amstrad CPC, BBC Micro Model B, Commodore 64, Commodore VIC-20, Dragon 32, MSX, Auric Atmos, and ZX Spectrum. Basically any tantalum-riddled computer that you could reasonably play a game on, for the princely sum of £8.95. Well above the normal price of a video game at that time. And gamers had to pay twice over as the game was needlessly bisected. The game, investigative journalists would later reveal, was the brainchild of a man called Dougal Thompson, who had previously been known to the world of armchair puzzling as Ken Thomas, and the prize for solving its mystery was a golden hair. Thompson's business partner on the Hair Razor Enterprise was a man named John Gard, whose girlfriend Veronica had previously dated none other than Kit Williams. From vague suggestions made during their relationship, perhaps he remarked how nice Amtil would be in the spring or early autumn. Veronica had deduced the location of the hair, and once Thompson had that information, it was a matter of writing to Williams for corroboration and then getting out a shovel. The scandal caused by the discovery of such subterfuge forever tarnished the masquerade hunt, but did not prevent Hairraiser going on to hold quite a unique position in video games history. If it is a video game, it is the worst, because you cannot derive any enjoyment from it. That's the voice of Stuart Ashen, a comedian, YouTuber and the author of terrible old games you've probably never heard of. Yeah, you fire it up, it fires a wall of bad poetry at you, which may be part of the puzzle, may not be, nobody knows. Then you are dumped into a field, there might be a rabbit running across the screen, there will be clouds possibly, and there will maybe be trees as well in certain positions. Well, I presume the positions are important, or at the very least how many of them there are important, again, Nobody really knows. That's about it. A little bit of text that says something like, help is here, or the potato is left of the monkey, or just something utterly, utterly meaningless comes up on the screen. And then that's it. And then you can move to another location. But you can only move in certain directions as if you're in some kind of maze. So we actually mapped it out. And it still makes no sense whatsoever. You just move to different locations Possibly see a hair, possibly don't, get some meaningless text and look at some badly coloured trees and clouds. And that is literally it. So it's certainly not a conventional video game, but is it a conventional puzzle? If, if you just bought it solely for the purpose of kind of deboning it and taking the puzzle out, would it make sense? Really, there is no video game aspect beyond the puzzle, certainly not in any traditional sense. But equally, Nobody understands the ethos of the puzzle. It's probably the most sort of opaque and pointless thing I've ever seen. What I described earlier of the screens, that is all there is. There are no instructions. And the game promoted itself by saying there was a prize. Absolutely. Yes, the golden £30,000 prize of the golden hair, yeah. I mean, we know that obviously the people who got the golden hair cheated to get it, which doesn't put you in the best mindset for dealing with one of their puzzles and it does make you wonder if their entire business is rotated entirely around the ownership of a specifically beautiful piece of jewelry 
they're probably not going to want to give that jewellery up. So that's another thing that makes people think, I wonder if this actually is solvable, or is it something that has been made so deliberately obtuse that it's effectively insolvable? Oh, it was reported in a magazine that apparently Annika Rice, while doing some sort of promotional thing, I think at Harrods department store, had given another clue to the puzzle. That's all anyone seems to know. They put out a press release saying that had happened. But I would love to speak to Annika Rice because I'm about 99.9% .9 sure she didn't and had no idea what they were talking about. And they just put a press release out at some point to make it seem as if this was an ongoing thing and maybe spur more sales. The mystery of Annika Rice's involvement was something that I couldn't help but set out to solve. So I reached out to her and offered her the chance after all these years to set a record straight that she maybe didn't even know needed straightening. Well, it's a bit of a mystery, and I think there's probably about 10 people on the internet who care about this, and I'm one of them. But um, after the golden hair was was dug up and there's controversy over how exactly it was found. Yeah. Um, you know, it was scandal, wasn't it? Scandal at the time. <laughs> I mean, it really did make all the papers. Yeah. That's the voice of Annika Rice, who, if you don't know, was an iconic fixture in 80s and 90s British television, headlining shows like Challenge Annika and, fittingly, Treasure Hunt. The fella who um, dug it up then sort of mortgaged the hair to, to fund this video game called Hair Razor. It is reported on various places that you delivered a sort of extra clue because the game was too hard. You, you At Harrods, you delivered an extra clue, but no one recorded what the clue was or whether it really happened. Do you know, I might well have done it. <laughs> and it sounds really crazy that I can't remember, but I had probably two or three decades of such intense work in an average down might bounce from three or four different you know projects and so that would have just been one tiny chunk of one day where I was catapulted into Harrods jumped around a bit did something or other with a clue and and disappeared again but I do remember being part of something in Harrods relating to that whole mystery and the clue. I mean, it would be mad not to ask me to deliver some sort of clue, bearing in mind the, the, the popularity of the, my treasure hunt at the time. So I was definitely there. I definitely did something. I haven't a bloody clue what it was. <laughs> so if anyone can help, it'd be nice to know. So you think it was a real thing that you did deliver a clue, which is, I guess, the part one of the mystery is whether you actually ever delivered a clue for hair raising. Well, put it like this, for them to drag me all, all the way along to Harrods, probably pay me to be there. There must have been something I was doing there that was relevant. Otherwise, what's the point? So I'm sure there was something exciting and slightly underhand and mysterious that was going on. I just don't know what it was. I'm sure I was wearing a jumpsuit because, you know, I'd have been asked to turn up in full, you know, treasure hunt kit. So I probably played along and did whatever I was asked to do. I just wish I could remember the 80s better. They went in such a daze of chaos and abseiling and jumping in that helicopters and <laughs> risking life and live on a daily basis that I barely remember the detail of it all. But I do remember once being invited to Harrods to do something involving masquerade. And I would love you to tell me what it was I was doing there, Nick. Even if he did cheat to find the masquerade solution and leverage that into creating arguably the worst video game on earth, not everyone sees Dougal Thompson as the villain of this story. K 
Kelvin Horton was involved in the original hunt for the hare and then, in 2019, was one of the organisers of Masquerade 40, celebrating the book's 40th birthday. He went to visit Dougal Thompson ahead of that to try and persuade him to finally tell his story. He does come out the woodwork from time to time, but he, you don't get very... F- I mean, I treated him as somebody I met in the pub. I wasn't there to inquire. It's quite unusual. He looks like a retired hippie, I must admit. But the thing that was unusual is that he was sitting in the dark in his living room, and I couldn't quite work that out why. Then I realised there was a, a tame bird flying around from time to time. I think it was a cockatoo. Right. <laughs> and what did he tell you about, about Masquerade? Did he tell you the truth? As much as he's allowed, I would say. You know, I didn't get any more out of him. I didn't, I didn't actually quiz him as a journalist. And the, the editor of the Bedfordshire on Sunday newspaper has, has really quizzed him and not got very far. I wasn't expecting to get anything new out of him. It's just that I thought that it might benefit him to talk about it. In fact, he did come to one of my um, evenings and he, he brought his own video recording expert and so on, and recorded everything I said. And how do you, how do people in the in the steering group and in the kind of the wider sort of masquerade and local community look at him? Do they see him as sort of the villain of the masquerade story? Dougal Thompson. No, he's a he's a hero. He's got reflected glory. He did end up with the jewel, and he he ran his own video game. It didn't work out. The company went bankrupt, and the receiver took possession of the jewel and then sold it. I mean, I got all that out of him. But but is there not something? unfair about coming upon the hair in the way that he did rather than rather than doing the puzzles and working it out through no, that. No, I don't I don't think so because that's how, that's exactly what I would have done. In fact, what I was doing and failing. I've exchanged emails with Thompson trying to convince him to be interviewed for this podcast. He claimed to me as he did to Kelvin that he is contractually bound to silence. And so the truth is locked inside an eccentric paratoning wheeler dealer in Bedfordshire. The light of the golden hair that shone so briefly like a magnesium flare has now sputtered and died. The hair's current whereabouts are a mystery, no less exacting than the one Kit Williams engineered. It is believed to be in a private collection in Egypt, but few know the precise details of the current owner due to a wish for anonymity. All the same, they paid £35,000 for the hair, and as if that weren't enough to confirm that modern man has more money than sense, The sketches and preliminary drawings of the treasure, in which Williams marks out the features from the suspended moonstone with its eyes as purple as iodine vapour to the ruby-encrusted leperine eyes, were flogged at Sotheby's for £17,500. There is something mystical about the hair, and particularly about its story, that makes it a very appealing piece and fascinating to me on a personal level. But at times it looks more like a child's mobile than a thing of great beauty. Was it worth that much in and of itself as a work of art? Or is its value imbued with its history, its sense of mystery? When it came out in 1979, so I'm 10 at that point, my local library, Mossway Library in Liverpool in Croxteth, where I'm from, and no one was interested in it at all. So I sort of just took it home and I did the usual thing of just looking for the hair on every page. I had no idea what the central riddle was. I didn't. I don't think I even tried at that point. That's the voice of Carl Kopak, who administrates the Kit Williams Facebook page, as well as being a prominent writer about Liverpool Football Club. I don't know a great deal about art. And I know that's the old cliche, isn't it? But I know what I like. And in the documentary that came out a few years ago, he was showing his more recent stuff. And it's just, he's incredible. He's just absolutely incredible. He's really, really interesting. And uh, 
so inventive and such an interesting character. I, I love the fact that, you know, we were getting a thousand letters a day and the first thing he would do would use the envelopes to light the stove because he's a practical man and there's a practical man in the book. I, I like that sort of idea of being a genius or being tucked away and just coming out with genius things and not having to deal with the public. That really, really, that's something I'm very, very interested in. I like mysterious people like that. So it's, it's much him as much as his art because I've no idea how he comes up with the things he does and, you know, how he can make things so... Not just aesthetically pleasing, but sort of mechanically pleasing as well, as they showed on the documentary, the swinging painting and things like that. Just, how do you do that? How do you how do you even think that might be something I might do? Many of my heroes I'd love to meet at some point, but I don't think I'd like to meet Kit because I'd let him down. I think also it's because he's got a squint, and so have I. I have a lazy left eye. So as a kid, that meant something to me as well. No, you know, he's he's got the same thing as I've got, therefore I must be clever. You know, it, it's it was an inspirational thing as much as anything else. And... If I met him, I wouldn't know what to say other than tell me everything you know and get me to do the same thing, thanks, because I'd love an ounce of your talent. Have you been around the country visiting where you can see various of his works? And Well, for this 2006, I was very ill. I had a brain hemorrhage and I was off work for seven months and I was with my girlfriend at the time and she said, what do you want to do today? I said, you know, I've, I've, I know Ant Hill is literally 40 minutes drive from where I am at the moment. I'll say it's probably a bit longer now. I'd really like to go up there. So I persuaded my mate to come and give us a lift. And to see the cross for the first time, I know it was here. It's one of those amazing things for me where you can be standing on a spot, which means absolutely nothing to anybody else. And to be standing near the cross, and I didn't know where the spot was. In fact, I did until last year. And think, this is where the world wanted to be. And the world didn't know it. And all it was was a very, very windy, grassy park in Bedfordshire. I went in September for the Equinox then. I went at noon and then thought, right, this is where it was. Took photos of, you know, where the where the shadow lands. And then a gentleman came up to me and he nodded to me and said, you're here for the for the hair, aren't you? I said, oh, yeah. I said, I said you've missed it those 10 minutes. He said, then he said something about, no, you're thinking about GMT. And I still think he's wrong, but I still waited an hour just to be on the safe side. I don't want to get this wrong. I want to take a photo of where that is. And he had the German version of the book with him. So if he hears this, hello. <laughs> And that, that was a really, really nice moment too. And it's, it's, the, it's the Equinox soon, isn't it? So is it next week? I don't know. Is it? I think it's March and September, isn't it? Carl was right. As if by some divinely ordained sense of order, the Spring Equinox, also known as the Vernal Equinox, happened to fall just three days after our conversation. Which is why I find myself now, on the morning of March 20th, on a train heading for the small Bedfordshire town of Flittick, which I've just discovered is pronounced Flittick by the train's announcer. From there, I will ride the periwinkle, or maybe it's lilac, ladies' bicycle that I have borrowed for this task, all the way to Ampthill Park, the place where, back in 1979, Kit Williams and his celebrity witness, Bamba Gascoigne, buried the golden hair. So, this is at the Vernal Equinox moment for 2021, 9.37am, here at Catherine's Cross in Ampthill. Despite the weather warning saying a 0% chance of rain, there is a light drizzle and a full blanketing of cloud. That means that any shadow the cross might cast in on a sunnier day is lost. Anyway, this is the place that once upon a time, some 40-odd years ago, the hair was buried and then later where it was exhumed. It's hard to believe that this seemingly impossible puzzle ended here. This was the solution. I can see 30-odd people just milling around. It's a busy park in sort of suburban Greater London. I cycled up a really quite terrifyingly big road to get here. I'm not a confident cyclist. 
But I suppose under the earth, any place is as distant as any other, and you see that. When we unearth Roman ruins and undefused World War II bombs from underneath busy cities and find dead kings in car parks, is it any surprise that just a few feet beneath my feet here, the golden hair lay for years, waiting to be found? And I have all the wisdom of a Wikipedia page and people like Dan and Mariella and Carl and Paul to guide me to this place. I wouldn't have found it without the history of Masquerade. And that's what's brought me here on this inauspicious March morning. And I'm about to go have some coffee from my thermos because my hands are freezing. I was just fact-checking a few things about Hampton, and I discovered that, contrary, in my opinion, to basic logic, Williams didn't actually clue the Catherine's cross shadow to the moment of the equinox, but to noon on the day of either the vernal or autumnal equinox. So in purely masquerade terms, I should have come today at noon, which would have made my life quite a lot easier this morning. But masquerade wasn't about easy. And even though it wasn't about overt stupidity either, it was about dreams. And seeing in the equinox this moment of singular geometric union between the earth and the sun, our god-king, on this clouded over morning in semi-rural Bedfordshire, is some sort of dream. I had a dream too. A crudely formulated one, but a dream all the same. I wanted to create a podcast that would be its own treasure hunt that would simultaneously pay homage to Masquerade and be its own Masquerade for the podcast generation. A dream that might put Kit Williams, Masquerade and the Wishing Fish Clock back up in neon lights where they belong. Sadly, I didn't have any of the skills to achieve this, and so I enlisted a crack team of puzzle makers and software developers, Sarah, Michael, Ben and Catelyn. Thanks, Nick. Now, if you want to get your hands on the loot, you'll need to plumb the depths of this podcast for clues. Head to wishingfishclock.com. The link's in the podcast description. And when the time is right, the shadow will point out the route to the answer. The first 20 submissions thrown into our inbox will receive a prize. Submissions will close at the autumn equinox, the 22nd of September. So don't wait around. Time is a ticking. Good luck. So that's it. Get hunting. This has been the fourth episode of The Town That Knew Too Much, written, produced and presented by me, Nick Hilton. The music is by George Jennings, based on the planets by Gustav Holst. Particular thanks for this episode goes to Sarah, Michael, Ben and Kathleen for building an amazing puzzle. This is the fourth part of a seven-part series, available on all good podcast platforms. You can find out more about the show on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Just go to at the town pod on any of those or visit www.thetownpod.com for episode notes and more information. If you're enjoying the show, please go to Apple or wherever and leave a rating and review. And if you want to discuss the puzzle with fellow enthusiasts, there are some really great armchair puzzling communities online where you can help one another. The Town That Knew Too Much is a Podo podcast. For more information, visit podopods.com. Podopods.